Back in on Canuck Central, Satyar Shah with Bik Nizar. And as always, Canuck Central, brought to you by Andrew Sherrod Limited, your plumbing and holes, heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company, helping local business since 1892. If you missed the first hour, you can check it out. We discussed how the team, how the Canucks, when what they have to do to be a playoff team as they're setting their sights on for next season, how did they improve the defense, and what can they do in terms of their third-line center. And we had a good discussion with Frank Valley about the latest on J.T. Miller and his situation. And we have a lot of thoughts of that coming into our Dunbar Lumber Text Inbox 650-650. And, uh, you know, Bick, we are going to discuss Quinn Hughes as well because uh, Quinn Hughes became the fastest defenseman to reach 200 assists the other night when the Canucks beat the Toronto Maple Leafs when he had two assists. And it's, it's quite heady company and just the work he's done this season. And I think there's a there should be a discussion about what is Quinn Hughes' ceiling? And we can discuss what that really looks like, and we'll do that coming up in a second. But obviously, people have a lot of thoughts, and they want to get them in on the discussion we had about JT Miller with um, Frank Saravalli. And I think the thing that stands out to me more than anything, Bick, and ultimately we'll see what happens, right? This offseason, do the Canucks ultimately move him or not? But based on the level of interest and the fact that we're talking about potentially two first-round picks and the Penguins being interested in, in doing that maybe if they could clear money and, and all that sort of stuff, what does that tell you about how he's actually viewed around the league? And even though he signed a big contract and there's been a lot of criticism of him, he may not have the same negative perception in terms of how other front offices view him compared to how this market locally views him because he's not as bad a player as people make him out to be. So it's interesting that the league probably sees a player and says, yeah, he's got flaws, but he also does things that a lot of players don't do. It's like anything. Truth is somewhere in the middle, right? Obviously people wanted to see fans, I should say. Well, some fans wanted to see JT Miller moved, and there's a real conversation that he's not producing enough five-on-five. Five. You know, I, I think he's somewhere in the 170s, maybe 190s, as far as five-on-five five total production this year for forwards. So that, without a question, has to improve. And this is a down year for JT Miller unequivocally. Last year, though, I think he was 29th or 39th, somewhere in that range, as far as five-on-five five production. So it's somewhere in the middle. So he can be a top 55 on 5 scorer. The thing that's interesting to me sat is because he signs the big money, now it's like, "Oh, he's got to do this. He's got to do this. He's got to do that." Okay, what is he actually being paid for relative to the other forwards in the league? Starting next year. And this is as it stands right now, some other players might sign some contracts and boost this number up even more. As it stands right now, JT Miller will start next season as the 42nd highest paid forward. Actually tied for 42nd as the highest paid forward in the league. Tied with Jack Hughes, Logan Couture, Ryan Johansson, and Matt Duchesne. They all make $8 million. So essentially, he's got to get to the 46th highest scoring forward. And, and this is where I think the discussion around JT has... 
been somewhat exaggerated. The contract's big, and I'm not saying you know it, it's it's going to age well necessarily, and it could be fraught with peril. And it may not line up where the where the Canucks are going. Absolutely, all those things, all those risks do exist. But the Canucks aren't paying J.T. Miller to be a first line center. Bo Horvat got sixty eight million. Bo Horvat got eight and a half million over eight years. He got twelve million more than J.T. Miller did. That's closer to first line money. Even that isn't exactly like number one center, like true elite center money. It's it's like you're a good first line center. You're paying eight times seven, slightly less on the AAV, but it's twelve million less in total money. JT got paid to be a high-end producer, but he didn't get paid the the mega contract people were afraid of. Like the discussions that we were having last year, remember people said, "Oh, he's, he had a hundred-point season almost. He's going to sign for at least nine, nine and a half. Like, why would he sign for less than nine and a half?" And next thing you know, signs eight times seven. Still a lot of money, but I think you look around to what you mentioned. Look at those those players. Who would you rather have, Matt Duchesne or JT Miller? Who would you rather have, Jonathan Huberdeau or JT Miller? And that's not to say you know those are good contracts, but it's more about there aren't players available. There's a premium that gets paid to get good players around the league. And just because it's imperfect doesn't mean there isn't an appetite for it. Guess what happens in free agency? You overpay for players. And if there aren't free agents, you might have to pay for you have to trade for players who have contracts that may be more than you want to pay. But more than anything, he's the type of impact player or he's viewed that way around the league. And I think people shouldn't forget that he's still a player that's viewed as an asset league-wide. So having said that, so starting next year, we're looking at and saying he's got to play perform and produce at, again, about the 46th best forward. Sat in a bad year for JT Miller and in a bad year for the Vancouver Canucks. Not enough talent around. They're trying to inject it with more talent into next year. As far as forward production goes, where do you think JT stands right now in total points across the league for forwards? A 45th? Literally 45th. Is he actually? Literally 45th. Oh, good guess. In a bad year for JT Miller. In a bad he's, – he's easily a top 50 forward production-wise in the league, right? And he has been. And people look at that and they say, all right. And, and the other thing about JT's play, when he's on physically and the way he can win along the boards, that's the type of guy whose game playoff-wise does translate. And I know people have mentioned his past playoff failures, but the bubble year he played, he was very good. With Tampa, he, had 18 he played. Points and he was fantastic. Yeah. And, and, he, and he can play he's, He can play playoff hockey for you, right? I'd say the biggest question, Vic, is what you mentioned. It's not about, you know, people get so caught up in is it admitting a mistake or not. To me, what's interesting here is if there's a high valuation that gets paid, it's about the high valuation. And if JT gets traded, I don't think he gets traded, Vic, unless the Canucks get a massive return. And this was even the discussion last year. They didn't want to trade JT just for a first-round pick and a whatever prospect. They wanted something tangible before trading him. And that's that truth still holds today. So I'll see, you know, we'll see if anybody pays that price. But I think that's an indication of they feel like, at the very least, they have two centermen they can win with, him and Pedersen. And why punt on that organizationally? Unless they get the price they want. That's always been their line on JT. It's it's still doing your job to check the prices of a player, right? We said a couple post-game shows, every single player in the league has a price. It's just if you're willing to pay it. And if the Canucks set a valuation on JT Miller and it gets met, I don't view that as you are admitting your mistake just because it came... 11 months after you signed him to a deal before the next deal kicks in. If there's a benefit to making the deal that brings in multiple premium assets, you would still go about doing that. This is where you know I push back on the idea of 
the contract doesn't allow them to be flexible. The cap space, like cap space and cap flexibility are two different things. And if your asset is movable, that allows you to be flexible. And it's not necessarily just about, hey, what can you do with $8 million? That's what the flexibility is. It's the asset and how liquid that becomes. That, to me, is cap flexibility. And, and just because the timelines are a bit odd, for instance, I'll use this. If, if the Canucks draft someone and trade them within two years, having seen them play at the NHL roster, and we're talking about a first-rounder, and they trade them, is that admitting your mistake, or is that just using an asset to match a price across the league? Well, I think it's – I think part of it is what your true evaluation of the player is. Sure. And what the true upside is. But, yeah, I mean, it's not – I mean, if a guy has enough value for you, he's an asset. So – I think it comes down to assets. Like, and, and one thing about – one thing that is emerging about this front office with how, I'd say, calculated they are and maybe cold they are in their calculation, I don't think they care too much about – Feelings. I think it's more about. Well, we've seen that for sure. Exactly right. It's more about. Hey, we we've set, seen a very public show. We have that exactly from behind the bench. Well, even Bo gets traded. The yes. captain. We saw the whole Boudreaux thing. I, I think to maybe to a fault. They're like that. They're cold in their calculations. So I think they just set prices on their players. If you meet it, we're going to trade them. Uh-huh. Where where they admit a mistake is if you see JT get traded this offseason for an underwhelming package. Then yeah. you're like, that's clearly admitting a mistake. But if they get first round pick and plus. That's not to me. That's not a mini mistake. And the point I was trying to get to, as far as drafting someone high, like Vancouver Canucks drafted Jared McCann, saw him play for one season, yeah, less than seventy games. I think it was sixty nine exactly. Nice, <laughs> and traded him. Now, because they made a mistake, does not mean like the trade was a mistake. But was that them admitting a mistake on Jared McCann, or is that them just making a trade for value? I think part of it was they wanted to make a trade for value and deem him expendable for a number of reasons, but I don't think they felt like it was necessarily a mistake. It was a guy who had value, where they felt like, right? And so you can have that conversation. If the price on JT Miller gets met, and it's a first-round pick, and you say, wow, we got more assets than we thought we could have. This this is the price that we were met from 14 months ago. And even and even that, even even beyond that, like everybody has a price. But I think the other thing too that's becoming very clear again. Look look at what they've done, and you can just look at what what somebody's mo is, right? Look at their history and how they're operating. We we have a body of work over a year now. We have what eleven trades they've made, so we have things to look at and how they're sequencing things. I don't think they move JT unless they have an idea of who they can target next. Not to say that you have to get a center back for for JT if you're moving him. I think it's more about can we can we find like it was reported another team that has what we want and we can flip those assets for that. Like and we're not going to lose this guy who's our second line center unless we can replace him. And not that you have to trade us your replacement, but can we find the replacement in our market? Within our timeline. And if you can't, you're not moving the player. And I think that's a logic that applies. And we can sit here and talk about you can take a different pathway. But in terms of trying to figure out how it's going to unfold, I think that's a big part of it. And, you know, Brandon poses a question from Vancouver. The concern with JT for me is he's a driver at 5-on-5 five five while, not, while not being a defensive liability without being too sheltered. That's Brandon and Vancouver texting in. So we can also look at how he's played under Rick Tockett recently. He's played his best hockey under Tockett. Is he going to be able to sustain that consistently next year? That's a good, good question. But I think he's showing right now, at the very least, he can, at the very least, play 5-on-5 five five drive offense and, and drive and not be a liability because he hasn't been a liability over this past little sample. I, I want to see him play consistently with not Brock Besser. Yes. 
We've seen Connor Garland go there, and they've had a little bit of chemistry since Rick Tockett's here. I'd also love to see Vasily put Coles in with JT Miller. Yeah. Put Coles in Miller Garland. He, yeah, and, and put Kozen can kind of be the uh, uh, Pearson type player on that line. Yeah. You know, win along the boards, make plays along the boards, get in on the forecheck. And even break glass in case of emergency scenario if you need to keep the two Russians together. Put Kozen and Kravstov yeah. with JT Miller. Yeah, well, yeah, Mikheyev coming back as well. Bavillier may, may be opened up. Sure. I, I think there there are some options there, right? But I think ultimately you don't have his long-term duo here either. No. Or you, haven't, or you haven't, you haven't identified it yet, I'd say. Which is why, you know, we talk so much about Besser and Garland and, well, eventually, like, someone's going to get moved out on, on that role. I still view this as if they can get a bona fide center and you put JT on the wing, that to me is always the thing. And and, and that's why when people are like, oh, he's got to play center, he's got to do this. And the, the, the worry about five-on-five five play driving to me dries up a little bit if he's suddenly on the left wing because we've seen him do that so well. He, and I think he can be a better driver from the wing, to be honest. I agree, but he has versatility to do both. And I know people are wondering why did they keep JT over Bo. I think the reason we can get into which one you should have kept over the other, but both guys are imperfect. Like, regardless of who you kept, you still needed to find another defensive centerman some way, like a third-line center, someone who can do the dirty work because Bo wasn't great at it and neither is JT. What Bo did well this year was outscore his problems, but he's also he was also punching above his weight point-scoring-wise. How sustainable is that? Right, and you probably could have had him Cheech sign. He's going to storm down the gondola. Right, he is going to yell. Sustainable, sustainable. But, but I mean, he signed, uh, and you could have probably had both signed cheaper in the off season compared to now. Absolutely, and you know that's obviously part of the equation. But I think they looked at both guys are imperfect. We just feel like JT can provide more offense, and as simple as that. And if it doesn't work out, he can play wing for us and be a, a, a point scoring winger. We feel like that's going to at least age better for us. I think that's part of the cold calculation on the players because both guys are imperfect. Like Bo's not the player people want him to be, but he is a good hockey player. Like even gold, mm. like his scoring somewhat dried up in, in with the Islanders. They've won, but he has eight points in thirteen games. It's not. Quite I, I will at that say level. It's, it's also been more non-event, yes. right? So I, I think it's been eight points in fourteen games, thirteen games, something like that. But his goals against have also decreased. But this is always a thing. It's like that happened here too, right? And when, when there was a focus, when Bo Horvat wanted to focus on defense, yeah, it was it was fantastic. But it came at an expense. And it's also very obvious that Bo had far better value on the market than JT did. That's, JT never the got the problem, price, yeah. right? And we'll see where JT is at based on some of the stuff Frank said this off season. But it's clear that. The best trade return outside of Chikrin, and even Chikrin you can talk about because it could be two first-round picks and the higher first-round pick because it's top five protected. But that's it was the Horvat return was the best return alongside the Chikrin return that we saw at the deadline. What does that tell you about the value of the asset? So would that make the Horonic deal the second? Probably, deal? yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty similar to Ratu in a second, but you got Bavillier as yeah. well. The Canucks get a fourth too, so the calculation looks a bit different, but they do add... Some, some, something so the three biggest end. deals uh, in trading season. I'm not going to say deadline day. Um, Involved Vancouver. Horvat, Ronick, and Horonic and Chikrin. Like Meyer, yeah. Timo Meyer got a lot, but yeah. it was volume. You know, it was more it really of a volume. Was, yeah. It was volume than, than the quality, really. But also, like the, the yeah, the quality of the pick is also lower, much lower than Ottawa's or the Islanders. Yeah, so it was the quality quite was, and Mukmadulin is a decent prospect, but. I guess him or Ratu, not too dissimilar, perhaps, yeah. in terms of overall value, but the overall asset value of that pick Me personally, I'd rather have Ratu. Right. But uh, I can understand I'm, if some people were thinking... Defensive prospect. They, would yeah, be better, they, yeah. They, see some, they see some upside there. And, you know, 
and I see a lot of reaction. JT is always polarizing, right? But in terms of his play, like he he has been a lot cleaner. Like he's had less and fewer giveaways than uh, Pedersen, like Josh Elliott Wolf was telling us just earlier. Since Rick Talk has taken since, over, yeah, since Talk has taken over, that's all we're talking about. But his game has improved, and you see it also just in terms of the eye test, but the numbers also back it up. Can the chance creations improved a lot. That's the thing. Like, and that, that was the thing that, that was the compl the the complex the um, the perplexing thing about his early season struggles. Bick was not only was he poor defensively, he wasn't generating enough. He was scoring on the power play, but that was it. Yeah, and like the points was one factor, and certainly was a problem. But like the chance creation had completely nosedived in the early part of the season, and. His usage obviously changed. He had to go to the wing to play with Bo or play with PD a little bit, very little. But that was a thing where it was really concerning that he wasn't creating, not even for others, just even for himself. That started to stabilize a lot more. It's got to improve still, but it's certainly getting a lot better from where you work. And if, if this is what he was just at the beginning of the part of the season, you would say, oh, it's just a cold streak. Just a cold streak. Don't worry about it. He'll rebound. We're, we're now living in a cold streak world for JT Miller, and at some point, like the production is getting hot now. That's the big thing. Well, you need you you need him to be productive. You pay a guy that much money, he has to be productive, right? And you know, we mentioned coming into the segment that you know. Uh, Quinn Hughes is doing some incredible things this year, up to 200 assists. The fastest player defenseman to reach 200 assists in the national in National Hockey League history, and his play has been consistent all season. Like there was a little dip for a while where he where he struggled defensively, but even under Tockett, his production's there. His overall play still is is highly impactful. But I'd say it's even more impressive under Tockett because he's playing more minutes and he's still controlling the game in, in a massive way. What's the ceiling here for Quinn Hughes? Like we keep maybe readjusting how we view Quinn Hughes as as a player, but now that the team is adding Heronic, and if he is the impact player they think he is, how much of a, a boost is that going to be to Quinn? And we know that the greatest assistance players can receive to be productive isn't zone starts, isn't quality of opposition, is quality of teammate. Just better teammates. Like great, the, great players need great players. Yeah, and he hasn't had a great player to play with. Like the closest thing we saw was was Chris Tanev in his rookie season. Mm -hmm. That was rookie Quinn Hughes. Now we're talking about year four Quinn Hughes, who leads the history of the league to get to 200 assists first for a D-man in 263 games. You know how we how we were talking to Frank about evaluating this front office as somewhat incomplete based on the deadline because of, of how what what they still are looking to get done this offseason. That was his take on it. I'd say that our evaluation of Quinn Hughes' ceiling is incomplete because we haven't seen him play with a legitimate top four guy yet. Like God bless Luke Shen, mm -hmm. but not a top four defenseman. And, and also too, like Quinn Hughes is twenty three years old. That's huge in this too. Like, for, for a guy who is a bit smaller, I do want to see Quinn Hughes at 25, 26 years old when he ultimately fills out and now this is who he is. Because we've seen a, not the the typical physicality from Quinn Hughes, functional physicality from Quinn Hughes in the past two months of just being able to get ahead of a guy, use your leverage, not necessarily strength, use your leverage to put a guy into the board get the puck away, and because mm -hmm. he's so fluid on his feet, just a minor disruption to someone else's stride, whether because you stack them or whether you create a little bit of contact, his ability to just take the puck away and go 
is so strong. And once he gets to, you know, 25 years old, that's when he's going to be at his strongest. Not that it's going to be overwhelming, mm-hmm. but functional strength for Quinn Hughes is going to play such a massive role in how he defends overall. And when you're talking about upside, look, I, I think there's certain players he probably won't pass, like a Heiskanen or a Headman style. In terms of two-way impact or defensive impact as like, well. To me, Heiskanen and Headman are the two best left-handed D in the league. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, Mira Heiskanen, I, I love Mira Heiskanen's game. It's, it's, I don't care. He can score 30 points, and I can still yeah, view him as the same. Yeah, he just controls Crushes games. everything. Yeah. Rasmus Dahlin, probably ahead of Quinn Hughes and probably will stay ahead of Quinn Hughes. But after that, again, I'm talking in two years' time. Like, I know Jacob Slavin's a star right now. Devontae's star right now. But in two years' time, could he be the fourth best demon in the league? Or fourth best left shot D in the league? So we've, we've had this discussion. And where will Roman Yossi be, right? Well, you know what? Like, right now, this is where the discussion you know, there are different discussions. There's like today's discussion, then tomorrow's discussion. Yeah, but we're talking upside, right? Yeah, I, I don't think we've, we've like this isn't the finished product. We no, need. it's not. And I think even with how he's played this year, I totally understand why people don't have Quinn as a top ten defenseman this year. Yeah, I still think that's fair with how well he's played because there are so many good defensemen this year and, and guys you mentioned who are a bit older. But are there nine or ten other players you take over Quinn Hughes? Ten defensemen in the league you take over Quinn Hughes if you're building a team today? Should we do the exercise? Yeah. So let's do the obvious. Let's ones. do ten. We'll, we'll count them out. Okay, Heiskanen. Yes. Darlene. Yes. Makar. Yes. Fox. Uh. Oh, interesting. Okay. I, uh, okay. I say okay. Let's say yes. I mean, he's already won a North. North. Let's say yes. Let's say, like, yes. let's say yes. Okay. He's yes. Sub-30. Yes. Yes. Cider. Yes. McAvoy. Yes. Edmund. Yeah. Uh, Romaniosi. Not long term. He's thirty-one. Okay. Yeah. That's what. Well, he's thirty-two. Thirty-two. I mean, Hedman's also better. older. But yeah. I mean, how, yeah, but how so good. Yeah, Hedman's insane. Uh, Slavin? How old is he now? Uh, yeah, how old is Jacob Slavin? I want to say 31. No, I'm not taking him. Oh, no, he was way younger. 28, sorry. 28. Still not taking him. Six-year difference. Uh, Chikrin? No, I'll take Quinn. So there's seven guys. I'm running, yeah, I'm running out and, of names. And, and, I, and I said yes to those guys reflexively, yeah. to, be, to be fair. To be like, let's count guys out instead of being on the Dougie head. Hamilton. Dougie, so that's seven guys for sure I take above him. It's hard-pressed to find three other defensemen to take over him because of the age, right? Owen Power? I haven't seen enough. I, got, I have to see more. Yeah. But, I mean, again, maybe he's the eighth guy. It's hard to find ten other defensemen long-term to take over Quinn, right? And, and I think that's the way to look at it. But also, as much as you know, we've, we've debated this point, I know Dan's been a lot higher on Quinn's year than even I've been any of us have been, but I've pushed back a little bit on overall his overall upside. But I think, to be fair... It's somewhat undefined. I think if we're trying to limit him or, or say he's been figured out, unless until we see him with a quality defensive partner, I think his ceiling is undefined. I think that's very exciting about what he's done. Because this game, the last little bit, like we mentioned JT and how good he's been and overall how the team play has improved under Rick Tockett. Quinn's been consistent all year, and he's been even better recently. And and that's why I talked about the upside of Philip Peronek. If you missed that, you can go back to the start of the podcast uh, in hour one. But there's an upside to Philip Peronek playing with Quint Hughes. 
There's an upside to Quinn Hughes playing with Philip Ronick as well. Exactly, and that's that's what's exciting. And somebody texts in McAvoy uh, over Hughes, Hamilton over Hughes. What are you all smoking? You can easily say you think Hughes is better than those guys. But the point we're making is it's hard to find 10 guys. And if you want to ten choose assets, assets that are above him. said assets. assets yeah, yeah. So like 10 of them, 10 defensemen. And it's hard to find. And I'd say Charlie McAvoy is a really good defenseman. One thing that people should not forget is how good these guys are defensively and the impact they make defensively. And if somebody is that elite defensively, they don't have to provide nearly as much offense. Mm-hmm. And I think just looking at the points, we said doesn't McAvoy. Do yeah, we said. No, he said he says it's not. He says McAvoy over Hughes. You shouldn't pick uh, Hughes is better than oh, McAvoy. Oh, I thought and they Hamilton. meant the other way. No, I was saying Hughes is better than McAvoy and Hamilton. I didn't pick him over Hamilton because Hamilton's older. Yeah, you know, but <laughs> yeah, Hamilton was the wash, but. Charlie McAvoy is so good. He's really good. Incredible. Somebody texted in Broberg. Don't think so. Philip Broberg. <laughs> is there another Broberg? It's a, it's a joke. I think it's for my guy Mike G texting in. Uh, all right. A great reaction on the Dunbar Lumber text inbox. As always, appreciate your text. Uh, and we'll try to hit some more as the show goes on here because we are going to hook up with our good friend Don Taylor from Donnie and Dolly about what to expect from the Canucks and what happened at the trade deadline and... The joys of beating the Toronto Maple Leafs. That and more right here on Canuck Central. Hitting the most important topics for Vancouver sports fans. The People's Show with Vic Nazar. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It is Canuck Central. This hour brought to you by Andrew Sherrod Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company helping local business since 1892. It is Satyar Shaw with Bic Nazar in for Dan Riccio today. We are going to hook up with our friend Don Taylor from Donnie and Dolly coming up in a few moments' time. Bic, it's always fun when the Canucks beat the Leafs. It's a lot, a lot of fun. And it's the best. One thing it reminds me of, too, and in a year, especially towards the end of the year, everybody wants a high draft pick and losses are more valuable than wins, and we all understand that. But it's a reminder of what it's like to, to just play a team you don't like or fans who get to see your team beat somebody you don't like. For whatever reason, right? And it must be so exhausting to be a Leafs player. Every <laughs> building you go to, it's just this venom, and everyone wants to beat you all the time, That's and great. the players are all fired up every single game. Is that why they lose in the first round always? <laughs> well, I, at least that's like shared motivation to go get the cup. Just yeah. regular season, you're like, Man. snowy day in Columbus, but we're getting their best effort because everyone Canucks. wants to beat us. And it was great. You know, it's just, it's just a reminder of, not even about meaningful games, but hey, what makes hockey games great is there being something important on the line. And sometimes just the the rivalry itself matters. And I, I think just trying to spend time on, you know, whether this game should be this important or not. And, you know, this season's going sideways and are the Leafs and Canucks even rivals. There's, there's a shared, there's a hatred for the Leafs from this fan base, no matter what. And anytime they play the Leafs, it's a fun game. And 
it was it was a lot of fun just being at the arena and having that type of vibe again. And in a season where we haven't had a lot of those games in the building, I just hope we see more of that. But it's just it's just the power of rivalries, man. And this is why, like, in, in soccer, I love European soccer and, and why relegation makes it so great because every game matters. Mm-hmm. Every single game matters. And if you're playing a, a rival, even if you're in relegation battle or you're in the middle of the table, you want to fight tooth and nail to win that game. And I think that is kind of lacking in hockey in general and has been lacking in hockey. And I can understand why when you see games like that, the league is trying to conjure up some rivalries because you see the impact it has and how it takes the game to another level. It's hard to create, but it's just it was just a lot of fun. Just a lot of fun to be in the building to see the Canucks beat the Leafs and, and have the game be as intense as it was. Close game the whole way, physical. You know, I wouldn't put it up there with the Rangers-Flames game that we saw earlier in the year. But it was really strong the whole 60 minutes. And both teams had prolonged stretches of dominance. Obviously, the Leafs had it in the first period territorially, but Mm -hmm. Canucks bring it with some physicality. And then second period, Canucks throw it back their way and and create a bunch of chances of their own and even score, ebb and flow throughout the whole game. And and finally, this explosion uh, on that PK. Uh, for the Canucks, kind of breaking the game open. Well, yeah, and it's just, hey, anytime the Leafs are in town, this building is full of Leafs fans, and it's always fun to see them go home unhappy after spending money at Rogers Arena. All right, let's bring in our good friend Don Taylor into the conversation. Donnie and Dolly on Czech TV. And and you know what? Obviously, Donnie, having real meaningful games down the stretch matters, and we wish we would be talking about a playoff race, a meaningful playoff race, and hopefully we see that soon. But not a lot of regular season games or victories are better than the ones where they involve beating the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, I don't know if you saw our show today, but um, it, we, our, our poll question is, are the Toronto Maple Leafs the, the Canucks' number one rival right now? And I realize they're not in the same conference, but, and you know, let's be honest here, there hasn't been a lot of heated playoff uh, matchups yeah. you know, lately. And uh, my answer was yes, just because I, I, when's the building, when's, when's the last time the building was like that? Oh, yeah, it was last year when the Leafs were in, in town. It, it it just no team in this town anyway elicits emotion like the Leafs and man it was just a just a lot of fun to stick it down the throats of the Leafs and, and their fans on Saturday for for Canucks fans there's uh, really nothing like it and you know Saturday four o'clock hockey night in Canada uh, all sorts of really good storylines it was just just really good theater. You know, we were just talking about the rivalries, and, and the NHL goes out of the way to try to create these rivalries. And, you know, traditionally I would say it's it's the Flames or the Canucks' biggest rival. But to your point, it's like we see them so often, and how often do Flames fans try to take over a building here at Rogers Arena, right? Yeah. Like, there's obviously mm-hmm. a fair amount, but it's usually 70-30 Canucks fans. It felt like it was 60-40 Leafs fans <laughs> on Saturday yeah. night, and that's what like, made the building so crazy <laughs> that both sides are giving it back to each other the whole time. Yeah, and, and you know, I think it's one of the problems, like, not problem, but let me just It's a good problem to I'm solve. Pro- I'm as proud a Canadian as there, as there can be, but, you know, when you go to Europe or you go to the New York area or any place where there's these clusters of cities that are so close to each other and you can have, you know, the road fans be there, and it really makes for a great atmosphere. And people got a, a taste of that on Saturday. My, my theory, and again, we talked about this on the show uh, the other day, I think that rivalry has grown a lot. And um, and, and I'm calling it a rivalry. I'll, I'll stick by my, my guns there. 
Um, but it's grown a lot. 94, they meet in a Western Conference final. So strange to say that with, with the Leafs. And there was some hatred there, some emotion there. Canucks were clearly the better team. But it's really grown. And, and my, my theory is that just a lot of people have become more and more angry at Toronto for whatever reasons. You know, running the country, center of the universe. You know, the coverage, the, the, the networks give the Leafs and don't give the Canucks or the Flames or the Oilers. And I think that's really actually been a good thing when it comes to increasing the rivalry. And it just it, it was just really fun. I, I watched it on television and the emotion and the atmosphere came right through the TV. Again, really, really special. Well, and it's one of those things that I, mean, I, I was talking to Vic about this. I can understand why the league wants to, you know, conjure up these rivalry games and create divisional rivalries because yeah. the game is just so much better when you have something like that on the line. But the, but the truth is, it just takes so much time for those things to happen. Like even with Vancouver and Seattle, like we're still a few years away, and maybe a few, you know, um, hard battles and a lot of bad blood away from that truly taking off as well. Because it just takes a long time for that. To, you can't manufacture these things, but I know I can understand why the league does because the games they're just unmatched when they're like that yeah i think you know i think with uh, rivalries you know geography helps and maybe one yeah. day the kraken and canucks will get there the other thing that helps is an incident like mm-hmm. you know you know something you know something that can be just awful like the, the draper lemieux hit back in the day with detroit colorado and boy that that had that rivalry lasting a long long uh, time but uh, I, I, it would just be so great to have those two teams, the Kraken and, and the Canucks, meet in a playoff series where there was some hate. And I, I've always said this, too. Like, when I say hate, I mean hate from a sporting point of view. And it's, mm-hmm. it, it's a good thing. At least you feel something. And you're not just – too many times we go to a game and it's a night out or it's a business or, you know, that sort of thing. That's kind of the feel you get. It's still hockey and it's fun. And there's nothing like it. But when you get past that and it gets tribal and there is anger and there's emotion and that you kind of felt that on Saturday, that's a great thing when it comes to sports. Uh, so Tyler Myers has uh, fulfilled his quota this year for a big hit. Last year was Duncan <laughs> Keith, and now he gets the big one against Toronto. So he's good for uh, the next 20 games, right? Yeah, and I, I just wonder with, with that, uh, maybe you know, you know, maybe he got caught up on what was happening Saturday. And there was also the fight. And I just wonder what effect Tockett is having on Tyler yeah. Myers. You know, he sees this big, physical, talented player. And, yeah, he is talented. That that can that can at times be mean and, and, and angry. And maybe Sergei Gonchar is doing the same sort of thing with him, pushing him a little bit to play with a little more oomph in his game. It certainly looked like it on Saturday. And, you know, he's getting a lot, like, lo and behold, he's getting a lot of ice time like the other coaches have given him. And uh, he was really, really impressive. Well, and, it's, you know, the question with Myers is the consistency because he showed some of it last year and then it fell apart again this season. Now he's trying to reel it back again. And, you know, we joked about this, but I, I do think there's some truth to it. When you do play the Leafs, especially in hockey down in Canada, everybody does watch. And I wonder how memorable that's going to be for some GMs this offseason, right? Especially when Myers' bonus gets paid. and Because for, oh, yeah. for all his faults and all his issues, he's still a guy who's a righty defenseman, who is big, can be physical, and does have a little bit of talent. I just wonder if, if he does keep playing well down the stretch here with Talkett, if teams look and remember things like that, I wonder if he's worth a flyer this offseason. Well, there's not much money to pay, like actual yeah. you know, cash money, r- real money. It's still a cap hit, but it's only for one year, and you wonder maybe some team... Mm-hmm. Uh, that's you know feels it's close to the Stanley Cup might might take a chance on him. 
um, there's there's something there. I, I I've always said it, and you know the effort is usually there. I'm not so sure that he plays. You know, as I'll use the word angry again, as people would like. Uh, but there's something there, like, and you know, proof of that is I know it was a long time ago, but maybe the toughest question, trivia question for Canuck fans to answer is who won the Calder Trophy in 2010? It was Tyler Myers in Buffalo. He's there's a, there's there's a lot there. We just don't don't always see it. Uh, Saturday night, we uh, became uh, aware of a stat for Quinn Hughes, and it, it felt like it snuck up on us. I'm curious if it snuck up on you as well. 200 assists for Quinn Hughes, uh, the fastest to reach that mark in 263 games. I, I feel like, you know, we still always say, it's like we haven't seen a D-man like Quinn, Mar- Quinn Hughes in this market, and I still feel like we don't always contextualize, like, how good he can be and or is becoming because like we're talking like names of or and coffee yeah. and on and on and on uh for him to get to that mark well i'm old so i just assume every record like that is bobby Orr. and you, you don't even have to be old you just have to look at the guy who won two hard trophies as a defenseman and nobody else has done it and, mm-hmm. and it's such a short period of time that he that he uh played but the other thing that's really and it did sneak up on me it's not up on everybody i think except for people who work in the canucks and numbers department but guys like he gets there and is he playing with the greatest and all due respect, is he playing with the greatest team in the world with the greatest teammates? No. What if he was on a team mm-hmm. that was just lights out? Like where would that number, where would that number be? Where that, where would that games played number be? be? I would imagine much lower. It's really, really uh, impressive. I just, I love, I love watching the guy guys play. Oh, uh, Elias Pettersson gets all the uh, plaudits these days for being the best player on the team. But Qu- Quinn Hughes is right there. He's just so so good. So good on a team that hasn't always been good. And we've seen, at least Pedersen, we've seen consistently play with some high-end caliber players. I mean, him and Besser had chemistry his first season. His second season, him and JT Miller took off. And obviously, we've seen what he's done with Andre Kuzmenko this season. So it's clear that, that he's a guy that has played with high-level players and this year is going to score over 100 points doing so. Quinn's a point-per-game player. But outside of his rookie season, when he played with Chris Tanev, he hasn't really had a quality D partner, and God bless Luke Shen, but I think we all agree, not a top-four caliber player. Ethan Bear's done well, but we're not viewing him as a you know, real top-pairing defenseman. What might we see from Quinn Hughes if him and Hironic do play together, and that's actually a good duo? Yeah, you know, it's like I, I, I got the feeling when, I forget, I think it was at a post-game interview or, or you know after a practice, but he, he did an interview recently before Luke Shen got traded and it was obvious he was kind of upset, you know? So not only is he been unable to, or the Canucks have been able to find a regular, and I mean by regular, I mean more than, you know, one or two, two seasons, not only have they been unable to find a regular partner for him, but you know, when they, it seems like they have, they either, they either unload the guy, trade him or whatever the case may be. That's got to be really, really frustrating uh, for him. But, um, I could just imagine what he'd do if, if Heronic works out. And, you know, look, I'm sure they're going to try that off the uh, off the bat. Maybe they don't have chemistry together. I don't know. But if, if that works, that that's pretty special. And just the, the thought of Quinn Hughes, you know, firing a pass over to him for that big right-handed shot, that seems pretty special. So we'll, we'll see. But, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure he's a bit frustrated. But to have those numbers with the team he's on, it makes it even more impressive. Bobby Orr played on good teams. Brian Leach played on really good teams. So this is, I think, you know, makes it even more impressive. Not to put a ceiling on it or anything like that, but, like, what's a realistic point total we'll see one day with Quinn Hughes? It, like, does it start with an 8? Does it start with a 9? He, he might hit 8 this year. Yeah. 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 The 5 goals doesn't help. 
at, at this point, but he might, you know, the, the way he's going. I, I would imagine, um, I, guys, you can help me. I think he's worked on his shot, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, that's one area where I'm sure he'd, he'd like things to be a little bit better if that ever comes around. Or, or if he just gets on a roll goal-scoring-wise, the, the, the playmaking, setting up people, he's got that down pat. Now if he could just pop in a few more, obviously you know that would help get him into the 80s and 90s. But I don't think anybody's complaining. No, and you know he, he's been absolutely incredible, and you know we'll see ultimately how much more he can give the Canucks over the next few years. And you know, uh, c- kind of moving off from the trade deadline a little bit, but just kind of tying up all the JT Miller stuff. Do you ever remember seeing discussions around a player who signed a contract extension, uh, what less than nine months ago, be this involved in trade discussion? Even though the deadline's over, there's still this anticipation. It seems for more trade discussion this off season. Yeah, Russell Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah. Okay, so that that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> His contract hasn't started yet. So that was that's who I would compare him to. Uh, hockey, I can't really, you know, I stand to be corrected. I can't remember, but Russell Wilson is the comparison we make. <laughs> yeah, that's it's great. like, you know, here's a guy, you know, who signed a contract extension. His new contract hasn't started yet, and he's been disappointing. JT Miller's been way better than Russell. I'm, this is a bad comparison. I realize that. <laughs> no, I love he's it. I love way, it. <laughs> as, as much as people want to complain, he's been way better than Russell Wilson was in Denver. So that would be the one, the one comparison I would make. And again, I, I stand to be, uh, stand to be corrected. It's funny too because Geno signs today, and the immediate thought is, "Boy, they really dodged a bullet with that Russell Wilson." So oh I'm curious. I'm curious when the next like center winger hybrid that gets signed, be like, "Oh, that doesn't look at all like the JT Miller contract." Yeah, but uh, just I know I'm off the seventies here, but the stuff with Russell Wilson in the second floor office, and uh, you know the you know personal doctor and all that, it just oh my god, what like where is he? What is he thinking? If, you know, if, if JT reinvents the Murphy bed here, then we'll have a story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's coming. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it could be coming. Now, uh, I did actually, you know, I watched quite a bit of your show today. You mentioned if we watch your show, and uh, it was a pretty funny moment with, I mean, it's always funny trying to hear Rick pronounce uh, names for players, yeah, but yeah. It, yeah. It, it, it's extra funny when those are Russian players. And, you know, he kind of mentions Gavrikov and Barabanov. Now, to clarify, did he mean Barabanov or Barbashev? Because I know people wonder if he meant Bar- That's right. That's, that's what I we thought. I, I got, yes. I, I'm confused. I'm still confused right <laughs> now. It's been hours later. And I, you know, I listened back to the show and the pie. I still don't. I'm not really sure. He met Barbashev because he was talking yeah. about the guy who scored the two goals last night for Vegas against Montreal, which was the former Blue uh, Barbashev. Right. But, you know, for a while it was uh, some player who's never played in the NHL. Yeah. <laughs> it was. Pretty, it was. It was pretty confusing. Yeah, it was pretty funny though. It was great yeah. uh, hearing you three, you three go after it like that. But yeah. you know, on the Gavrikov front, I think. It makes sense, doesn't it? Like Milstein, Klein, we talked about this on the post-game show, joked about it a yeah. little bit and said, here's a lefty defenseman, a guy who has size, can kill penalties, can play alongside Heronic potentially, you know, was teammates with Kuzmenko and Ska back in the day, Milstein, Klein. It's like it's like all signs point to Vancouver, and you, can, you can't fault people for, for seeing that, but that one might make sense if the Canucks clear cap space, Donnie. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, I mean, he's got this, I mean, I'm talking about Patrick Alvin, seems to have this connection with Dan Milstein, and that's, I mean, so far so good. I mean, Kuzmenko, hello. Um, so so far so good. I, I'm I'm okay with it. And it seems like it, it it seems like he would be a fit. We'll see what happens with Los Angeles and some playoff games for him. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, 
for all the moves they've made um, that don't point to the future, the ones they've made for the present, and we're still waiting on, on Heronics, seem to be pretty good. Seem to be pretty good. But again, like everything else with the Canucks, it's wait and see and complain. They traded Newport for Gold Stars is basically what happened. <laughs> yeah. 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 Dan Milstein's a good guest. I don't know if you guys have had him on. Oh, oh yeah, he's terrific. Him. Yeah, he's terrific. He's, he doesn't a, pull he's, he's, a, he's a character. He's funny. Oh yeah, and he tells he he tells it like he sees says it like he sees it too, right? And that's always great when you have guests on. He's not afraid to ruffle some feathers. But Donnie, always a pleasure getting you on the show. Always, we look good, forward. always fun. Yeah. Oh yeah, and we look forward to watching uh, you and Rick on Donnie and Dolly on Czech TV as always, Monday to Friday, ten to noon. So keep up the great work, Donnie, and hopefully one day we'll talk about more Canucks victories like the one over the Leafs on Saturday. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, guys. All right, thanks. That's Don Taylor from Czech TV. Always great having him on the show and always a hit on our text inbox, 650-650. Jeff Rose saying, Russell Wilson, LOL, Don is hilarious. That, that, is, a good, that is a good comparison. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really that's good strong. one. Because all really year, right. pretty much all we talked about when it came to the Seahawks and the NFL, it was Seahawks were having their success, but it's also having success in relation to the Denver Broncos. It's the Canucks can win a game. It's JT Miller. You know what? The, 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 Scored a goal. The but fu- what does it mean for a strike? <laughs> you know, the funny thing, too, uh, when I look at that whole situation with uh, Russell Wilson and Geno Smith, Geno just signed a contract three years, $105 million, And that's seen as a far lower risk than signing Russell Wilson to a contract. And had I told you this, though, like before last season, that's like, that's like, almost, that's like almost predicting that Curtis Lazar was going to be worth like a $30 million contract and be better than JT Miller this upcoming season. That's kind of the comparison. Former first-round pick, a guy who's been a depth player, was making like a few hundred K, really, a million bucks as a backup quarterback, and now somehow you feel like him making $105 million is a safer bet than what Russell Wilson got. And that's how bad Russell Wilson's been. I don't know. I heard some people uh, say Geno Smith was going to be pretty good last summer. You did, right? Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks for listening to the show, Sat. Thanks. That's awesome. I got roasted <laughs> you did for takes like this. You did get roasted for it. But I mean, now, mind you, I didn't say he'd be better than Russell Wilson. But, but he, I mean, it's so because he signed almost like that's a bargain. $105 million, That's a good deal. For, for it's a great deal. Nobody I, honestly, feels bad for it. Again, when it was like week seven and it was clear like yeah. this Geno thing wasn't fading away, we started talking about the, the contract extension. Three years made the most sense to me, right? He earned a contract. And, and that's the thing. As an organization, you want to be able to say, if you put in the work and we give you a chance and you succeed in it, you want to be able to say to the rest of the organization, the rest of the players. You reward them. You're, you reward them. So it seems like a lot of that money is going to be up front. And if it still gives them an out, right, you want to sign a three-year deal, draft a guy in the next two years, develop them, let them sit behind Gino, and then make that transition. And I'm curious. I haven't seen the cash flow just yet, but I'm curious if that third year has – outs in it it wouldn't surprise and me they make that cut then yeah they could see it happening but honestly like in in terms of being happy for somebody this is somebody who was rumored to perhaps be a top five pick heck number one pick mm-hmm. in his draft ends up going in the second round it's the butt end of jokes for years backup doesn't get anywhere almost out of the league and now finally he makes 100 like he went from thinking he's going to make like you know 30 40 million being a high draft pick to making like what five or six million for his career up until this point, and that's still a lot of money, like eight or nine million, whatever he made. But like for a guy who could have easily been like, man, I missed my lottery ticket, and to work and persevere and now get what he's getting, it's just as a human interest story and and, and a story of perseverance and hard it's a work. Generational wealth contract, yeah, great that's for him, great for G- I'm and, not even. A, and look, yeah, how did he get it? Just competed, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, 
you want to talk about some of the tenets that are trying to be instilled here? Mm-hmm. Compete. That, that incremental com- compete. Not saying, just saying. I don't know. It, it's the philosophy of how to get more out of yourself. Yeah, no and, doubt about that. And, and the short-term measures people look at and say, "Hey, this is going to work. You have to do other things," which are valid and and absolutely true. But this organization is also trying to look at what does 2027 look like, or what do we look like in 2027? We can't just decide when we start competing. We had a great conversation about that with Brett Festerling mm-hmm. uh, on the Saturday post-game show. Have a listen. But like, if you're going to be in organization that wants to compete you can't just pick and choose when you want to do that no exactly and it's one of those things the competition always has to be there even in those types of years and the Gino thing great story for him and a great great comparison by our good friend Don Taylor who joined us here on Connect Central all right uh, that's it for Canucks Central for now. We'll be back with more on the other side. It is also game day. Canucks and Preds, a lot to dig into. It is Satyar Shaw with Bick Nazar right here on Sportsnet 650.